from New York City. A podcast from working actors, directors, and playwrights. This is the Cry Havoc Company. Hello, and welcome to the Cry Havoc Podcast. Today around the table we have... Jenny Curlin, I'm an actor. Jen Reichert, I'm a writer. Jerzy Kwizdowski, I'm an actor. Will Clark, I'm an actor. And Kit Lavoy, I'm a writer and a director. Uh, today we're talking about audience interaction in plays, which is something that you see in many plays. It is candidly something that very often makes audiences very nervous. And so we're going to be talking today about ways in which it can be useful, ways in which it's used that are not necessarily useful, and ways when you do use it to make it something that is a positive experience for an audience rather than a, an unnecessarily stressful one. What raised the idea for us of doing this topic was a recent open workshop that we held where we brought our audience in uh, to take a look at and talk about a solo show under development in our programs uh, called Not Easily Forgotten by Kevin Hallman, uh, which really involves a fair amount of audience interaction. And uh, Kevin actually was going to be with us today, but is uh, sick. Uh, but we do have with us uh, today uh, Will Clark, who directed that piece uh, in our studio program and actually is still working on it. It's, mm. it's still under <clears throat> development. So do you want to tell us a little bit, Will, about uh, what the piece is and how audience interaction is involved in it? Yeah, um, it is a solo piece and it's a semi-autobiographical piece that is kind of a, uh, a, a man trying to figure out what his identity is through reviewing things from his past and his relationships with his family and his relationship with women and his uh, uh, desire to be black uh, <laughs> and kind of just cycling through his history and, uh, and taking the audience on the journey of trying to figure out who he is and what his place is while they're also kind of maybe doing the same thing for themselves. And uh, I remember when Kevin first talked about trying to market it, he would he would say something like it's, a, it's an absurd theatrical conversation and so that's, that's something we uh, tried to work on in our rehearsal process as well as, is making it more of a conversation and bringing it out to the audience. And in the open workshop, uh, the way that we work our open workshops is the same way that we work our workshops when it's just the company, which is uh, a goal-oriented uh, discussion wherein we ask the people working on the project, what were you working on and what were you looking for feedback on? Uh, one of the things that uh, you and Kevin uh, were specifically looking for feedback on was issues having to do with the way that the audience being drawn into the conversation experience that and uh, can you talk a little bit about ways in which the audience is brought into uh, the piece? Sure well like I said Kevin says it's kind of a conversation the audience is engaged from from the moment he starts and uh, you know though they are not responding uh, he's always keeping it as a direct address everything that he says the entire story is 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 directed to them uh, but Beyond that, he does uh, have moments in the show where he selects specific people that he has very specific and different relationships with throughout the show. And in uh, one case, does actually bring someone up onto the stage with him. 
I will say that I know that for myself, I generally absolutely hate it when I go to a show and am expected to participate. It is something that is a source of great anxiety for me. Um, although I think that that is relatively telling insofar as it's not stage fright. I have acted. I'm not afraid to be on a stage. And yet I get very uneasy when I feel that I'm going to expect to, be parti to participate in something that I am not prepared to participate in. That said, uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting about Cave and Show and that you and Cave have done together is I feel much less anxiety surrounding that piece than I do most others. And do you guys who have seen it under development and saw it in the open workshop where there were a bunch of people who were encountering it for the first time, do you guys have thoughts about what it is about that piece that uh, that's different? Well, I feel very similar to you about audience participation in general, often because it, it in my experience, it's made the person that's pointed out look foolish. And that's, and I don't want to look foolish in front of whoever else is in the audience or to the person. It makes me extremely nervous. And something I noticed about Kaven's piece is that I always felt very safe. Like he was using the audience in a way that was not poking fun at them. You know what I mean? He was not forcing them to really do anything. Like the most, you know, they had to do was hold a baby or a fake baby. But like, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't, it wasn't forcing them to to make that step and like really interact with him. And it was, it felt very safe. And there were a couple of times it was like, oh, I wish he had picked me, which I never, ever, ever feel. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it, it was, it was really interesting to watch. Somebody in the uh, discussion afterwards said that these audience interaction type of things feel like they're built to embarrass them. Yeah. And, and so the, you know, I need a volunteer from the audience kind of stuff is always, okay, now who wants to be humiliated? But in some ways, Caven's piece seems to be built to embarrass him yeah. and the audience. Yeah. And he really puts that up front right away. <laughs> and the audience um, participation interaction at every different level seems to really be letting him off the hook, you know? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, from the very beginning of, of his show when it opens, uh, he starts by playing music and dancing while getting dressed, and he invites people to dance with him, but he never insists that they dance, he yeah. never forces someone out of their seat to dance, and so sometimes people get up and dance, and when no one gets up and dances, your people in the audience might be thinking, I'm thinking, what happens if nobody dances? How on the spot is he if nobody dances, but he continues to just go fully with what he's doing and it, and it makes you feel more comfortable with the fact that I don't have to, I don't have to do this for this to work for him. Yeah. It's still working for him without my And I've seen it a couple of times both when he's brought it into workshop and now with this open workshop with, a, with an audience of new people where no one was dancing but everyone was having a great time. Like it was, it, he was setting like the tone of the piece. Mm -hmm. Like I, I actually didn't feel like I was supposed to get up and dance. But I felt like I was supposed to have a good time, and I did. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it, it, was, it was fun. Yeah, Kevin managed, managed, even without dancing in this one, to inspire the dreaded audience clap along. You know, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right at the beginning, which is kind of another, like, stacking a deck, you know. You start with one of those clap along dealies, you know. <laughs> you do it. <laughs> you do it. And, it. and it happened, and, you know, everybody was on board, which is another 
Mm-hmm. He tried to be the most difficult and prevalent and annoying form of audience interaction <laughs> right away. <laughs> for whatever reason, which we'll get into, I guess, is it wasn't, it didn't feel annoying. <laughs> well, I think part of it, too, is that he really puts himself on the line. Um, in terms of the things that he's willing to talk about in it and be very candid about. But even beyond that, he walks in in a white robe and then takes the robe off and is in his underwear and is dancing around as he's getting dressed. And there's a degree to which, you know, if he's willing to put himself on the line in that way, clapping along doesn't feel like that big big an investment compared to the way in which he's putting himself out there. Yeah, true. Well, also that there's a moment where he he tests his pain threshold, mm-hmm. and it's something that every time he's done it in a performance, he's he's gone 112 seconds with his hands submerged in this ice water. Which, but but it's something he's willing to you know not complete. It's a it's a it's a it's a test, and he sets it up that way. But I, I think you know that kind of willingness to sit there and and feel pain in front of this audience is another thing that. You know. I'd be curious about that because I always feel every time I'm watching that like what what if someday because he's he's actually mentioned outside that he's felt maybe he's doing some damage to himself every time he does this show and maybe one day he'll not make the 112 seconds like like there's this pressure on him he's yeah. doing the show he said he's gonna do it like to to do it every time like what, what if he was doing this show? It shows a week or something like yeah. you know. I guess yeah. if yeah. he sa- if you say he's willing that he would stop it if he felt like he couldn't take it. That I feel yeah. be- I feel better about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's also something that I actually think is a really I actually think that moment in the show, which comes fairly early, um, is a big part of what makes the show work as an audience participation event. Because what he does is he's saying that he's going to, for for reasons that I will not ruin because hopefully people will come and see the show um, at some point, um, is that he's going to submerge his hand in ice water for 112 seconds. But one of the acts of audience participation is he asks someone to time it for him. And, you know, he says, who has a watch or a smartphone and can you time this for me? So on one hand, that's an act of audience participation where someone is volunteering to do something. It's helpful, I think, and I think we will talk about this a little bit later, but that they are volunteering to do a specific task that they understand, which makes it feel safe for them. Um, But additionally, it provides the opportunity because I was actually watching it from the back of the house the other night, uh, and it's so interesting because what happens is people are watching Caven, but then people start watching the person who's timing him, and then going back to Caven, and then the person who's timing him, and essentially they volunteer themselves to become involved in the show mm-hmm. in that moment. That they have 112 seconds of silence and Caven's hands and ice water, and somebody controlling when Caven's allowed to not do it anymore. And they jump in, they become involved, they insert themselves in the event. And I, I really wonder, I'm sort of curious how willing people would be to go along with the later events if that 112 seconds 
of volunteered involvement were not there. Well, and I mentioned this um, at the, the discussion afterwards, but during that time, it actually made me as an audience member connect to all of the other audience mm -hmm. members there. It was a moment where we were all watching Caven, and we were going back to the, the man with the watch, and then we were all kind of taking each other in and experiencing it together, where actually I think that might have made the rest of it safe because you kind of then knew the rest of the people in the room because mm -hmm. you shared this incredible experience. And also there, there was someone who is kind of looking over Brian, who, who had the watch. Um, she was looking over his shoulder, which I think kind of made everyone feel a little bit more comfortable too that <laughs> Brian wasn't going to fuck with Caven. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else uh, in the open workshop said the phrase that the that particular section, but I think the whole opening really unified the audience in the experience of it. That it wasn't just, it didn't just become about individual audience members interacting with Caven, but it became about this group of people interacting with each other and mm -hmm. participating in some ways vocally uh, in this conversation and this discussion that the piece is. And that moment is, a, 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 I think, a great indicator of that because he's literally putting his well-being, he's actually testing this pain threshold and putting, giving power to that person that has the timer to the point where other people start looking and saying, like, come on, hasn't it been 112 seconds? Mm -hmm. Like, this guy's already been dancing in his underwear and going through all this stuff. <laughs> like, let him off the break. hook. Get this poor guy break. Don't, don't put him up for 113. Or well, I've also, actually, I've also seen one where uh, I, I feel like it was the timekeeper who started a countdown and it was almost like to oh. take the onus off himself so everyone was responsible that's, for it. They that's interesting. For the last 10 or 15 seconds, they did a, a, a full audience countdown for it before he took his hands out. So. Well, there's actually a whole um, theory in theater design about the importance of designing theaters where audiences can see each other. And it's something actually they've done studies and, it, and it's interesting that like oh. laughs and things like that, you can see travel through the orchestra, then spread to the boxes and then up to so the balcony because it's bouncing from people reacting to each other reacting and I actually think it's something when you think about things like magic shows where they ask somebody to come up and do something if you've ever been to the in different circumstances it feels to me at least like a very different experience if you're at an event at a birthday party where you know everyone who's there rather than if you're at an event where you're being called up in front of strangers to do something. And I think that that actually is something where by giving the audience the opportunity to bond, Caven in this piece does make it a safer space for people to be put on the spot, to the extent he puts them on the spot. Um, but I actually think a big strength of what he does, and it's interesting because I, I have found, because again, I am... <laughs> I just, I really, when I get to a show and I realize they're going to start talking to people in the eyes, I really want to leave. I always do. And I don't with this piece, which, I, which has really caused me to think a lot about what the nature of that is. Because I think that there are kind of two important ways of thinking about this audience interaction, and both are important. One is an artistic one, which is how does it help the show, but the other, candidly, is an ethical one, you know, which is asking people to do something 
that they haven't signed up for. And I think especially in circumstances, you know, that, that you talked about before, Jenny, that a lot of times it's, you know, designed to embarrass the yeah. person who's called up or who's pointed out. But that person paid as much money as everybody else did. And it's not fair, I don't think, mm -hmm. to give 99 people a good experience at the expense of the bad experience of one person who showed up to have the experience the other 99 people are having. And the ways in which you need to make it a positive experience, not necessarily a happy experience, but a positive artistic experience for the person who's being called on, as well as the people who are watching. Well, especially because, say for example, you go to a comedy show. You know walking in that there is a chance that you will be heckled and you know to sit in the back. Do you know what I mean? But a lot, but a lot well, at least I do. <laughs> but a lot of times, I mean, and with theater, you don't know that that's about to happen. And actually, and I was thinking, oh, maybe that's something that happens a lot with, with solo shows. But I'm going back in my head to the ones that I've seen before, and that doesn't usually happen. So it is something that people are walking in and probably not expecting that at all. It's, it's funny to actually think about audience interaction, audience participation in terms of theater, because... There's a line that you cross. I don't know if it's like the fourth wall or whatever it is because, uh, I mean, it becomes very clear over the course of cave show, but in any show with any kind of audience interaction, that there are degrees of it. Mm -hmm. Because the act of, you know, holding for a laugh is maybe the, mm. that's audience interaction. I mean, we're acknowledging the presence, mm -hmm. right? That's Where true. there's, you know, um, the unexpected things, the, if somebody yells out on stage or a cell phone going over, that, that's audience interaction. And then direct address to the audience is another form, you know, to involve them in the conversation. Then to ask for a volunteer, bring somebody up on stage becomes, you know, the next level. And it, it's true about what am I expected to do? What am I signing up for when I go to a show? And there do seem to be some shows or some directors or some types, you know, that, that really are excited about the idea of breaking that expectation or taking advantage of the fact that people aren't expecting to interact. And that's, I think, where the moral question comes in. But what's an interesting question to me is where is that line? I mean, what have you signed up for when you go into a theater? Hmm. And because, I mean, just a curtain call is audience interaction in, in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and and what I think is great, what Caven does is that he, he really fishes for sort of, I think, friendlies in the audience mm -hmm. and <laughs> introduces different sort of moves the line ahead over the course of the show to the point where it is comfortable to bring somebody up on stage, but you can't start there. Mm -hmm. It kind of uh, preps the audience for that, changes the expectation mm -hmm. over the course of the intro of the show. He also, in, in the writing and in the introduction, he, he says to the audience, I'm looking forward to performing for you today, which makes them understand that he's going to be the performer, that they're, you know, yeah. they're kind of setting up, but it's a conversation, so they're also involved. And then with the dancing section, continuously shouts out, it's a party, it's a party, which is trying to <laughs> redefine <laughs> redefine what it is as, as well. I mean, if he's, and it's kind of lets you be more comfortable. Maybe this is just a party. Maybe that's what it's going to be. I mean, you, so it's... Um, Do you know what it is, too? There's a moment in that opening where he is so honest when, like, this is a silly example, but where he's putting on his boots and he, like, turns to the audience and he's like, this is the toughest part. It's so hard <laughs> to get on the boots, you know, like, while yeah. I'm dancing. And it's like, it's this moment of connection where it's like, I, 
you have this experience too. I'm having this experience and this is going to be hard right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I also think something that is really important and, and that I think Caven does really well. And I feel like every other example of audience interaction that I've really seen work is that it accepts the audience as a scene partner rather than a prop mm. as that as that were that yeah. one of the things that that I, I think if you're going to expect the audience to participate in the show it becomes an improv show to some degree with the yes and you know that whatever the audience feeds you you're going to play with and that's something I think Caven does incredibly well which is sometimes he will ask someone something or do something towards someone and will take their non-answer as an answer Mm -hmm. You know, not pretend that they answered, not wait until they give the answer that he wants them to give, but he deals with the fact that they didn't answer him and incorporates that into, into what's going on. And I think that creates a certain sense of safety. But it also, I think, helps the acting. That there's something, I mean, again, that in really interesting... I mean, there is something that I, I think is part of what makes it feel safe um, when you see a performer who's using audience interaction is if you feel like you're not going to screw them up with whatever you do, that they're able to take in whatever you're going to do and they're going to be able to deal with it. Because usually you come to a show, you want the show to do well. Mm -hmm. You're not trying to screw up the person. And when you feel like there's a right answer to what they're asking me to do, it creates a level of undue pressure as opposed to an opportunity to play. And it's the kind of thing that we've talked about in other episodes in terms of being a good scene partner and things like that, that the goal when you're working on a scene with another actor is not, you know, that you say your line, then they return and you turn to the director and you say, wait a minute, I don't like the way they delivered that line. They need to deliver it better so I can deliver my next line. No, you need to deal with what they did. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those circumstances where you feel like a performer's up there and asks the audience something or asks them to wave their hand in the air and are just going to stop the show until they do what the actor wants them to do, that just feels unfair, yeah. if nothing else. Because the actor knows what's supposed to be happening. The audience member doesn't necessarily, and that has to be an okay part of the experience, both artistically and ethically, that, yeah. that the audience has to be able to respond or not respond however they feel in the moment, and it is incumbent on the performer then to deal with that response or non-response. And he deals with it, in Kevin's case, and I think in a successful, uh, a successful audience interaction, he deals with it the entire course of his show that there's not a moment where the house lights come up and it's and now we need a volunteer from the audience and everybody squirms in their seat hoping that he doesn't pick on them that he's listening and a active member in the absurd theatrical conversation that I think the the third word conversation really mitigates the scariness of the first two words <laughs> um, or at least the first word um, because he's reacting to not only the moments of interaction, but really that the entire piece is an interaction, that the laughter and the responses and the eye contact and the temperature of the room really affects, I think this is, I'm saying this after the benefit of having seen it a few times, really affects the performance in the way that a difference in your scene partner would. Not just in those moments of, hey, can you come up, stay up on stage or will you time me, but in the verbal, the laughter, the 
non-laughter vocal responses that some of the mm. moments get really become part of that conversation in the same way that the audience interactions. He sort of gives the same value to, will you hold this properly, come up on stage to the acknowledgement that somebody understands in the audience. And I think that's what makes it um, incredibly satisfying and a positive experience for the audience member. Mm -hmm. One one of the things I notice is when because the, the nonverbal response, the like the the nonverbal communication from the audience was definitely part of the conversation, and I felt like the way that Caven dealt with that, as opposed to say a comedian who like asks for a response and doesn't get a response, then they're like, well, you're like too dumb to answer basically. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, like you know, makes up something for you or whatever to you know to make you look like you can't hold it up. But when Caven does it, it's kind of like this acknowledgement of like, well, I probably made you feel weird. Or, you know, like that it's his fault that you don't feel comfortable enough to answer yet. And he he acknowledges that it's like, oh, that's, you know, this is strange. And so it's okay that you didn't talk. I'm just gonna, you know, I know why you're not talking and this is probably, and it's part of his like internal workings and external manifestation that it's not your fault that you're not talking or whatever you're doing is great because it's just that's obviously what a person would do in this moment yeah and and i think that that openness to letting whatever's going to happen happen i actually think really infuses the entire performance because one of the things that really came up in the discussion afterwards several people kind of want to know how much of that was improvised and how much of that was written. And having mm. seen it before, I think there were two moments in the entire hour and ten minutes that were anything other than what he had written. But I think a big part of the reason that it feels it feels improvised is because he's totally open to going with whatever the wherever the audience takes him. And usually he infuses that into the words. He, you know, whatever the audience is doing, he then lays into the words. But there was one moment that I absolutely loved, which was a bit of an improvised moment, which was that he, over the course of the thing, has this baby, a, a baby doll, that he uses for an awful lot of things, and he gives it to him. He, he says at one point that he doesn't think he should be a father, he needs a woman, and gives the baby to one of the women in the audience to take care of. And one of the things that I am fascinated by with that is every single time I've seen it, the woman who has it takes such good care of yeah. it, holds the doll like a baby and strokes its head. And I mean, again, gives herself over to her role in the thing. And again, I think part of it is she's been given a clear role. You need to be the mother of this doll and I'll be over here without the threat that something else is going to happen. But there was one point where he was, towards the end of the show, putting things away and he put the doll back in the box that he took it out of. And then he also, he has a book and he tossed that into the box and the entire audience seized up. And Caven saw that and he said, oh, it's all right, the baby's okay. And then went on, but A, the fact that he had been able to create around this doll such a sense of value that the audience was worried about it being hurt, says something. But again, that openness that what he did was he saw it, he dealt with it, he moved on. Mm -hmm. But I, again, I think that preparedness that he has to deal with whatever's coming at him both 
makes the audience feel very safe that they are not going to mess him up, but also makes the whole thing feel very fresh because it could change at any minute, even though it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the actual, I, I had one of my favorite moments in our rehearsal period dealing with that doll section because it was one of the sections that we were, I was a little bit concerned because it, it was became so much about the baby and not as much about the audience. There was as much direct address and he spends a lot of time with it and I thought, is this going to kind of feel alienating to watch this? And in the beginning of the section, he, he crushes the baby and then reforms its head. <laughs> and, uh, and we did one, we decided to do one where, where the baby was crying. The baby is crying this entire time and everything you're doing is to try to See, you know, appease this, this baby and get it to stop crying. And he did this amazing thing because every time he had reformed the head before, he would talk to the audience. But this time, knowing the baby was crying, uh. he turned his back to the audience and, and did it away from them. And it made the entire thing about the audience because he stayed true to his relationship to them. And it was just one of the more fascinating yeah. moments oh, in the rehearsal period. And it really does kind of bring you into that moment and it does make it much more real a baby because he doesn't he huh. has shame huh. in the fact that he has to eat <laughs> he did do that. Yeah. yeah it's really it was really one of my favorite favorite little discoveries I enjoyed oh. because in doing that he honors the relationship with the audience by having that relationship with the the doll the baby mm -hmm. that's really cool the and the mother character that comes up one of the great things about why I think each time the mother reacts and, and takes care of the baby in that way is that that character, it's not really a solo show in the sense that those other characters are in the show, meaning that that relationship is something that's developed over the course of the performance and that the preparation, that the, you know, acclimating the audience to the expectation that they're going to be interacted with is actually very specific to several people and that by the time the mother, you know, gets the baby that this is not the first time that they've been interacted with. She's been, she's been chosen um, earlier on. I think that's really cool. Yeah, and, and I mean, that really, yeah, that's friendly. really something, though, that, he, that, that is actually written into the script, is that this line is delivered to woman number four, this line is delivered, and so there really is a relationship that develops between him and audience members over the course of the play. So by the time he gives her that baby, it feels right that she's the one with the baby. Like, it really does. It feels like a relief that this we, woman it, has it the It might baby. feel like a betrayal to give it to somebody else. Yeah. Like, you were just talking to this lady, and now you're giving <laughs> this other lady the baby. And he, actually, the betrayal aspect of it, there's, there are moments in the show where he apologizes to that, you know, the primary <laughs> woman in the audience is interacting with when he interacts with anybody else. That they're, mm -hmm. That's right in there, too. Well, when he brings uh, woman number two up on the ladder, which is probably the most, if you know, in the world of this, the most evasive moment. He actually, you know, puts his hand out and guides her up to the ladder, except everyone feels very comfortable and safe with And then sings point. to her. And then sings to her. Um, but but he he doesn't break his connection with the first woman. He actually checks in with her and makes sure it's okay that he's doing this. Yeah. And it's kind of something that I think that's pretty great. And that's something, again, that, that I found so interesting this time watching it. That when he brought that woman up, which again is normally a moment in a show where... You, I mean, oh, I just feel like I want to die for the person who's being brought up on stage. But what it really felt like, and I think it actually traces to two things. 
One of them being that timing moment where the audience really gets the opportunity to interact with each other. And also the fact that he invaded the audience's space a lot. Like he strolls down the aisle to have conversations with people and finds his way. That there wasn't as clear a fourth wall um, as there, you know, might normally be in a show. But one of the things is when he came down, when he comes down the aisle, it feels very much not like he's invading the audience's space as much as he's treading into their territory. Like he seems uneasy to be there and is asking permission to be there and then kind of backs off to his space. But it really felt to me this time when he brought the woman up on stage to sing to her that it wasn't that she was being plucked out of the audience, but that sort of the audience was being extended up onto the stage. And that it actually felt that he was the one who was in danger because he was surrounded rather than the woman who'd been separated from the herd, mm-hmm. you know, was the one who was in danger. And I'm not totally sure I can put my, I think it traces back to those two things, but it was very interesting because I feel like that was the first time I've ever seen someone taken out of the audience where it didn't feel like they were being separated from their safe space. That is such a good image the separating from the herd because that is what it feels like that's the the the, the weak one who's being picked off to <laughs> for, the, for the sacrifice you know <laughs> it, and and once they are away from their friends once they are away from the people they came with they are alone and in danger but that's part of why i think it, it is different when you're like at a magic show at a party mm-hmm. where it's people that you know is no matter what you outnumber the magician he may be the one who knows how to make the, the flower disappear, but you and your friends still outnumber them mm-hmm. in a way that is not true when you're there, you know, at a show, at a, you know, at a, at a comedy show or something mm-hmm. like that, where, where all of a sudden you are outnumbered by the magician or the comedian and their posse of people who are laughing at you. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm. It's also something, you know, we talk so much with uh, when we're developing plays about controlling the dramatic question. and. It, when you bring the audience into it, it adds so many more questions that the audience is asking, and you don't want to spend the entirety of your show with some members of your audience focusing on, am I going to have to do something? Mm-hmm. Because it takes them out of the experience instead of putting them into the experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I think actually that brings up, I think, what is a, a helpful idea, which is how is it that you create those expectations? How is it that you essentially, because I do think there's a base contract with an audience, which maybe is the thing we should talk about. What is the base contract when you walk in, you know, to to a show? What can you be expected to do? I mean, it's actually a similar thing. We had this discussion when we were talking, uh, not this discussion, but I think it's a similarly framed discussion on our episode about nudity and sexuality and rehearsal, which is when you're cast in a show, what... Is it fair to say this person's in a show, I can ask them to kiss another actor? Is that fair? I think people generally expect, yes, you're cast in a show, that's something that's fair to expect you might do, but at what point do you cross the line? And it's where you need to have a conversation in before you ask an actor to do something. And it's a similar question, what things is it fair to expect an audience to do when they show up for a show, and what do you need to do something to reframe your contract? You know what, the first thing that occurred to me as the basic contract with the audience um, is is something that's thwarted in just what we're talking about, which is if you're, you, you come to a show, you expect that you're going to listen to somebody else do, say something and watch them do somebody, something on this, in this area, 
and everybody else is gonna be quiet. Everyone, no one's gonna like talk on the phone or rustle their candies or like talk to their neighbor or anything. They're gonna be quiet so that everybody can hear what's going on and not miss anything. And as soon as you do not quiet, that's audience, you know, like everything other than like clapping and laughing, which are the accepted forms of communication with the performers, people yelling things out, it becomes uncomfortable for everyone. That person is yelling things out. What are they doing? Like, I wish they would leave or shut up or should I tell them to shut up? Because they're doing it wrong. <laughs> you know, that I feel like they're, that's the basic contract. There may be other elements, but like then to add the audience participation where you're saying, no, you have to talk. That's like, well, that's not my job. You know, that's why it feels not right because you're trained to be quiet. And I also think there's the expectation that you will remain in your seat. Yes. <laughs> um, and that you will not be touched. Yes. And it also actually is worth saying that as much as we're talking about Caven's piece as one that involves a great deal of audience participation, actually less in his case audience participation, although there is some, as much as audience interaction. Mm -hmm. There is no requirement, and in fact I'm not sure when we did it this last time, that the audience ever actually speaks. No. And yet there still is a great deal of interaction with and things that they do that Caven responds to. And again, like giving someone a baby to take care of and things where he will turn and kind of ask permission of someone to do something that doesn't require a yes or no answer, but he takes their reaction as whether or not they are given permission, whether it's verbal or otherwise. But are there other things that are part of the standard contract that performers have with an audience when they come to see a show? Seems like anything that makes it a two-way street, you know, anything that couldn't, anything that couldn't happen in the dark, with yeah. the, anything that couldn't happen with the audience and in, in the with the house lights down, if you, if all of a sudden the, I mean, <laughs> I'd hate I would hate to arrive at this, but anytime you like break that fourth wall in terms of where the show exists. Because even if I'm laughing at the show or watching the show or participating in the show, it exists up on the stage. But as soon as in some way the show exists in our territory as the audience or their territory as the audience, that's the point, I think, at which some kind of line or wall has been crossed. Although there are also circumstances, for instance, in Shakespeare, mm -hmm. oftentimes it depends on the style of the of the, the, the piece and the, the, the choice the director has made, but very often soliloquies, for instance, are delivered to the audience. Yeah. And think, I'm not I sure that's crossing the Addressing the audience is yeah. okay. I think, um, so, like, sometimes they have it where, like, members of the cast are seated in the audience hmm. and then come from the audience as if they are audience members to participate in the show. Hmm. Although I think that's more... Accept it now, though it's a little scary for the person, like I said, for the person next to you to start shouting out about the show. It feels a little like it, you kind of uh, withdraw from that person next to you until they're gone. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree that that's cool and direct address. I'm way into that. I'm actually, you know, kind of into audience interaction done well too. But um, but it does seem that that's a now this is a show in which this is a. Thing that we're doing. Like this seat is now a part that, of the, the stage. Base, right. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, this guy sitting next to me just said a little more than kin and less than kind. Like, okay, now this is, I'm saying, okay. <laughs> but, um, 
the but that I think the base contract that that even direct address to the audience is something that has to be established mm -hmm. beyond whatever that base contract is. And I'm totally into it and support it. But I do think that anything that moves the show off of the stage, including direct address, is something that needs to be considered and executed with care in the same way that any other it's a writer. aspect of... I'm sorry? It's, it's a, a writer. It's a writer. It is, it's a writer. It's, <laughs> an, it's an amendment to the basic. But I, I don't... Th I actually... I don't know. Um, if we're talking about where that contract begins and ends, but yeah. I, I think it may... I think that direct address is the beginning of something else. Yeah. Well, what are the ways in which you announce that rider? Um, uh, and this might be an opportunity to talk about other shows that we've either seen or participated in that have direct address. Um, but how is it that you let an audience know that something different is going to happen? And how important is it and in what ways do you make clear what's going to happen to make it a safe place for the audience so that they know what to expect? That they don't know just now that I'm talking to you, it doesn't mean that I'm gonna start spraying a hose at the audience. <laughs> I remember I saw a production of Hair, and Hair is a tricky one because there is historically, uh, audiences participated in the original production in a way that was, I think, spontaneous, and people try to recreate that with whatever their current audience is by manipulating the audience into, you know, or trying to introduce them into the idea that this is all right. But I, I remember we were all, we were sitting in the audience, house lights up, the, I think there was like a, you know, preset on the stage of lights, um, and all the actors came from like outside the theater and walked down the aisles and just started talking with people in the audience. And they were all dressed in 60s costumes. Um, and they were giving out necklaces, like, and saying things like peace to you <laughs> as they give you a necklace. And I was just like, oh. And it turned out that one of the actors, I actually was somebody I knew. It was a friend of mine and he came over. And so it was more like saying hi to my friend than an actor coming and giving me a necklace and wishing me peace, but it still felt awkward because he's wearing a 60s outfit and like, I, what, what do I say to you? Yeah. You're going to go do a show soon. Mm -hmm. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then, they, you know, at the end they want people to dance. Yeah. But I felt like that was the extent of it with that particular show. And, and that was actually something um, when we, I, we saw Hair at the Delacorte in the, um, the, the, the public theater in the park. And that is actually something that, that they had at the end of the show, that they invited the audience to come up and dance. Um, but I think it was something that, that actually made a fair amount of sense because it was the end of the show after you'd had an opportunity to kind of see these people up there and understanding what it was. And also it was totally voluntary. It was yes. an opportunity to engage if you wish to engage. They weren't pulling anyone up out of their seat. And actually, it was part of what they said. They said, if anyone wants to, come on up and dance, which I think made it feel safe. Honestly, if they said, everybody come up and dance, I would have gotten very nervous at the end of a show that I enjoyed very much. Mm -hmm. But it was something that, again, they set the expectation that those people who wish to participate now is a time that you may. And additionally, that was a production where they actually had a live cam 
uh, online that you could watch, like where you went to get, you know, to learn about the show, where you could watch the night before or that or live, the audience getting up and dancing at the end. Huh. So it actually was something where much of the audience came into the experience with the expectation that that might be something. And that when happens. that specific show moved to Broadway, they continued that. Mm -hmm. And people had heard that that was what had happened with when it was in the park. Mm -hmm. Did you see both versions? I didn't see it on Broadway. I'd be interested to see the difference yeah. between the theater mm -hmm. and the Delacorte, too. And there's, this, there's a thing with the... the uh, because the public's Shakespeare in the Park, which here was a part of that season, there's also an experience among the audience before they arrive at the theater. Uh, many, many, many of the people have spent the day sitting in the park together waiting to get <laughs> tickets. And so they yeah. have already had the experience of getting to know strangers most of the day, unless they're subscribers and they got their tickets in some other way. But most of the audience waited in line all day and all night for <laughs> free tickets. and. You know, they have many other contracts with each other <laughs> yeah. up until that point. And I think once once the audience is there, there are ways to inspire and create an environment that's safe and allows for, you know, mm -hmm. specific, the people that now want to participate, now is the time, you know, that it is fair. Mm -hmm. But there might be, you know, I don't know if there's a way to make your show contingent on people participating. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's a way to guarantee that. And certainly and not to guarantee right. that they will have precisely the participation that you wish them to have. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Although that actually is something that I, one show that I admire the audience participation in enormously is uh, 25th an annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because the way that that works, and James Lapine directed it, I, I have no idea how it actually works. But it, it, the course of the show is it's a spelling bee, but there are four of the characters at the beginning of the play who are audience members, who have nothing to do with the show, and the moments of interaction with them where they're called up and asked to spell and things like that are totally improvised. You never know when someone is going to get the spelling right or wrong, so you don't know how long they're going to be up on the stage. And then there are musical numbers where they are participating in it. I have no idea how they did this. And then there comes a point in one of the musical numbers where all of the cast steps back and away, and it's just the audience members dancing in time, in choreography, that they were not taught but learned through the process of being in that musical number. It's amazing. So, you know, I mean, but that certainly is a... Is a I think they do two things very right in that show, which is one, I mean, clearly it's an incredibly yes and environment where the actors are prepared to deal with whatever the audience members do. And secondly, that's a case where what they do is when people are coming in the theater, they say, if you would like to be a one of the people who goes up on stage, please put your name in this bin. And then they draw it and they get those people before the show. Mm -hmm. So A, the people who are involved in that level of audience participation are self-selecting. And critically, it's not just they go around and say, would you like to, but they let everyone coming in the theater know, 
we have a bin of people who are self-volunteering. So you are not, if you don't put your name in here, you, you are not in danger mm -hmm. of being selected. And I, I and just also, think... I imagine that they, I mean, because they don't come from the audience. They're, they're you know, with the show from the start then. Mm -hmm. So I imagine there is a bit of like prep talk or something too, so that mm -hmm. they're just not totally thrown into this. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. the, it's the line for the front row of the roller coaster. Right. You know, yeah. Not everybody yeah. wants to be in the front row of the roller coaster. You're <laughs> going to have a different experience. You're not going to see the track that's ahead of you. You know, you might get a, a bird. Uh, you don't know what's going to happen. But that's the line for those people that want to do that. And everybody else gets the yeah. rows in the back. And sometimes the, the people that want to be in the front row of the roller coaster, I mean, talk about a positive experience. Mm, yeah. I think actually the best audience interaction moments are the when it's a better or for the people that are doing it it's a positive experience that became a high demand thing to yep. be one of the people in spelling bee and celebrities wanted to do it and became mm -hmm. this thing within the show that was the hot ticket yeah i think it's i think that, that it's really important to take the care and know that you're that even if you're making efforts to set it up that you're setting up the right thing i i, I when i was in college i saw a production of cabaret where they did much uh, much like what you said about hair, where they interacted at the beginning, they before the show began, the cast was in the audience talking to people, and that sets you up for the fact that it might be interactive. But I don't think it sets you up for the fact that the MC came out, jumped into some man's bald man's lap, and licked his head. That is not the contract I think they were setting up with the audience. <laughs> totally chit chatting with them. You might need an actual contract to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a very different different thing and I think uh, I think you have to be aware of what you're going to do and aware of what you need to set up for that to be something that's comfortable. And I think that idea of setting up expectation is so important. Again, for, if nothing else, so that people are not sitting in the audience wondering if they're going to be ambushed or wondering what's going to happen. And I think like part of what can help do that is if you are asking people to engage in an analog experience to something that they've done before. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing cabaret and you have people come out with boas and you know sit on somebody's lap, or, like that's something that if you understand this is set up in a way, and actually I remember when they did cabaret on Broadway, they had some seats that were traditional theater seats, other ones, and you knew when you were buying your tickets that you were getting one, that you were getting these, that were cabaret tables mm -hmm. that were essentially part of the set. And, but that was something that people who have been to cabarets before or understand what that is, to have someone walk through the audience and touch them or sit on their lap is something that you understand, okay, what's not going to happen is the SS is going to come in and take me away because we're in a cabaret in Germany. That is not <laughs> likely to happen, I understand what I'm doing. And actually a great ex example of that is, is Rock of Ages. Which I don't know if, if you guys saw that, but there, I mean, it's a really, really, really fun show. It's all kind of 80s rock, but there are parts of it where they, they actually hand out these uh, uh, LCD lighters and they ask people to stand up and wave their lighters around like they're at a concert. But again, that's something where people have been to a concert before. You're not asking them to do something new. You're asking them to do something that they understand. And people are much more willing to do that if they say, okay, you're asking me to do something that I understand the parameters of, either because you're explaining it to me or because you're asking me to do something that I have other experience with and therefore understand where my obligation ends. You're not, you're asking me to behave like I'm at a concert, which means it is unlikely you will ask me to come up and play the guitar. 
Whereas if you ask me, if you ask me to volunteer to participate, and I was worried you might ask me to play the guitar, I would be very reticent to raise my hand. Whereas I was delighted to stand up and wave my lighter around because I understood what that was. And because you were selling beer at the show <laughs> in Park of Ages. That actually uh, reminds me of another show I actually went with Caven and Carrie Flanagan to see in, in Brooklyn at Irondale Theater, uh, which is it's beautiful space. And, they, and the show wasn't necessarily advertised as being as uh, immersive an experience as it was. Mm. But the first moment when you walked in, you were greeted by a woman screaming at you in German. Just like, and rushing you along. And it was, I mean, you were definitely immersed, but you also had no idea what was going on and didn't know if you needed to speak and German. Away. <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. And there were other moments following that. It was, it was, kind of, it was a strange play that was a, a, a combination of the story of Peter and the Wolf and the Fritz Lang film M, and uh, they had, uh, when the wolf came down, it, it became a question of who is really involved? Are there plants in the audience? Because they would yell at people to, you know, contain him, and then the people would, but then they'd start to seem like they knew what they were doing, and, and I spent most of my time asking the question of, do they know what they're doing? And it, make, it makes it hard to focus on what I'm supposed to be focusing on. That well. actually really gets into something. that I mean, there's a degree to which, and I'm just going to reveal a bias here, but I think very often audience participation is a cheap trick. It's something to be sure. It's something that can be really exciting when it's done really well. But I think it's very often done by two sets of people. People who know how to do it really well and people who don't know what the fuck they're doing at all. Um, and those are, because the idea is, that's how you know people are enjoying your show, is because they're interacting with it and you're forcing them to interact with it. And I think that it's something similar, it's actually very strange how, how many of these things I actually feel like are similar to things we discussed in the, the nudity podcast. That one of the things we talked about that is that whenever anyone takes their clothes off on stage, there is going to be a degree to which the audience is aware that it is an actor getting naked in a room full of people. No matter what you do, that is going to be part of their experience of it. They're not going to be so immersed that they are just thinking it's these two people in a room. It's going to be part of their experience. And similarly, when you are asking people to participate by yelling at them in German, you may think, oh, wow, this is going to make them feel just like they're in Germany. It will not. It will make them feel like they are people who are being yelled at in German in a theater in the Bowery. That is what they will feel like, which doesn't mean that's not a valuable thing. But you need to accept the fact that is what their experience is going to be. And if that's what you want their experience to be, then artistically, at least, that's fine. There's the ethical questions of whether that's an okay to do something to someone. But you can't just imagine because you're asking people to behave like something that they're going to feel like that because you, their experience is going to be of an audience member who's been asked to participate. Um, and that, I think, is actually something Caven does really effectively, right. is that he embraces very much the fact that you are at a show. You are at a show, and that is the experience I'm asking you to have. Not to be the woman who I'm in love with, but to be the woman in the audience who I'm flirting with and is asking to hold the baby. Right. That doesn't reveal too much of a bias, Kit, because I think we can all agree that there are varying levels of uh, skill that, you know, handling that device mm -hmm. of audience interaction 
you'll have. I think the bias might lie in which percentage of those people you think are in which category, but <laughs> or we, any of us do. I, I had something, I don't know if it's important. Oh, well, uh, it's just the idea of, because like several of us have expressed terror or aversion to uh, be, being involved in a show and then other people self-select to be in a show, that there are two, there are clearly people who really, really enjoy being asked to get up on stage and do things. But I, I think they're that. much more sure. rare. I think a goal going into something where you're going to have audience interaction is to frame it in a way where it's not something that the audience is going to be anxious to, like the point where it's done. Okay, we've gotten past the audience interaction part, now we can just watch the show. It's something that once the audience interaction part is over, they're looking forward to the next time it comes up. Yeah. You, want, you want more of it. And you're jealous of the person, or how are they? I, I, I don't know. If I was jealous. I was jealous with Kevin's piece. Yeah. I mean, you don't like to be brought up, but you were. I was jealous. To. I wanted, I wanted, well, yeah. I think it's, you know, falls under the same question of not, you know, would I or wouldn't I do something, but what are the circumstances in which I would do something? Mm -hmm. You know, the same thing we talk about as, as actors, as writers, you know, um, that comes up a lot because I feel, I don't know about everybody else here, but personally, I might sign up. For the you know front row of the roller coaster, I might put my name in the I, I wanted to for spelling bee, or to be the in the jury box you know at uh, what was that inherit the wind they did a couple years later that mm -hmm. some of the audience was in the jury, um, mm -hmm. but I also wouldn't want to be called up not expecting to I think it's about the expectation uh -huh. yeah. um, and there are definitely there are people that fall on either side of the you know and wall, I but. I think it's incumbent really upon the uh, performers and the director. Um, you know, to provide the safe space. In, I mean, because that's the thing, we talk about the importance of a safe space to create when you're an actor. You have to provide that for, um, for the audience members. And I was actually, I was uh, earlier this week, I mean, this is uh, sad, but I, I was at a, a funeral earlier this week where I was going to be reading something. And obviously that's a very, you know, high you know, anxiety sort of a thing. But it was something I actually noticed that the priest who is presiding, who is, again, the person who knows what they're doing, that, that he did that I, I thought was fairly extraordinary was that he talked and then he said, and now is the part where we will ask Jenny to come forward and read this. And it was very immediately set forward at the beginning that when something, when it was time for someone who did not do this every day to do something, that it would be made incredibly clear that it was their time and specifically what they were to do. And it was something that I think, I mean, obviously a very high anxiety situation, but I actually think it's not, it's not a, a, a totally off analog for what we're talking about people doing and that idea that, again, it's the responsibility of the people who know what is going on to create a clear expectation so people know when something might happen, when something might not, and how far it might go. And it's the same thing with weddings, actually. People are so nervous of messing it up mm -hmm. for the people that are, you know, getting married or for at the funeral. Or it, there's such, like, a responsibility of, like, when do I stand? When do I sit? When, when can I say something? Like, that it, it's important that there's a sense of... A safe space. Yeah, and then that that you or know, and that you're, you're, it's 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 
shifted in a way that you know like a what to do. Yeah, it's it's directed in a way. And actually, it was this actually. I'm thinking again about the funeral. It was also, which I mean, it comes up with weddings also, but it was a Catholic mass, mm-hmm. and there were people who were not Catholic there, and it was something that it was very interesting to see that every time we got to a new section, he would very briefly, but just explain what was about to happen. And this is why this happened. This is how you can participate. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, and actually there were some cases where people who were Catholic and people who were not Catholic. But one of the things actually they did, which I thought was really kind of neat because they wanted it to be an inclusive experience, was when they did the Eucharist and people came up to, um, uh, you know, to, to get the Eucharist. They said, if, you're, if you don't, if you are not Catholic and don't take the Eucharist, come up with your hand over your chest and we'll give you a blessing. So that it was like, providing ways for people who did want to participate to participate safely. I mean, it's actually weird, but it's it's something that I actually think there's a lot of lessons to in terms of how to do it. I mean, if so many of the other, uh, that's actually great um, in terms of the the cottage church, because there's so much much (laughs) that if you didn't know what you were getting into going in. My my brother's wedding is the same thing. The priest was very clear about, for those of you that are joining us for the first, if this is your first time dining at Applebee's, this is how we do things here. Um, Sorry. Uh, But, uh, you know, so many, so much is made by us um, and I think responsible uh, theater artists about creating a safe environment, safe mm-hmm. space for the director and the actors in rehearsal and performance, that once you're including the audience in the performance, that responsibility extends mm-hmm. to the audience mm-hmm. um, to create that safe space. That if you're going to quote unquote use the audience as your scene partner, then the audience member or the audience as a you know unnamed blob of people deserves the same level of respect and and safety and responsibility and care and consideration as an audience as a, a scene partner does you know um, I think we should wrap up shortly but before we do there's one thing that I, I would really like to talk about which is a show that's currently running in New York I think most or all of us have seen it will apparently hasn't but uh, sleep no more um, which uh, you know, people might have heard about. I actually don't want to give away too much about what it is. Spoiler alert. Um, well, I, we, we will not spoil it. But, um, but, but what it is is actually a totally immersive experience where it's six floors of a warehouse that are made up, different floors are made up to look in incredible detail, like the inside of a hotel and someone's study and a forest and all of these things. And essentially, the audience for three hours wanders through this space in masks and are asked not to talk. And there are actors who are ju- who are wandering the space and engage in these wordless interactions with each other. And there's music and there's lighting. And essentially, it's based a little bit of both on uh, 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 Macbeth and like Hitchcock movies of the 40s and it's really very very interesting and again the expectation that the audience is free to go and go wherever they want go through the drawers look through the books go through envelopes that people have in their desks and those of you who saw it I mean what what do you think that has to say about the audience interaction and what we've been talking about? I think the expectation element of it is handled 
very uniquely, but I think very successfully for that show, which is that the contract or the expectation is that you should not expect a contract or or have an expectation before you go. That very little detail is given about the nature yeah. of what it is, but I think there's an expectation that something is going to happen that is going to be different, that you are going to be asked or you are going to be allowed to do certain things. But it's your own level of participation that I think... It's your responsibility. Your responsibility to interact or not, which which gives that level of safety. And then once you arrive, you're given, you know, in various ways, you're sort of very smartly given a little sort of a briefing or you are suggested and the rules of the world become apparent to you and in some ways reveal themselves to you as you're there. Um, and there are sort of people there to make sure that things go the way things are supposed to go. Um, but that, that contract before you enter, there's a sense of they're actually a hugely successful show that's a lot about interaction um, and they, they're selling out all their performances or the shifts, I guess, rather than performances. Um, so there are people that are craving this kind of interaction. And it was so interesting watching, because I, when I went, I was just watching the other people there, too, yeah. who, were, who were in the same experience, you know, were in the same position as, that I was. And they were so, I mean, like, they were, they were, they were going through the drawers, they were reading the letters, they were picking things up, but they were always, like, putting things back exactly where they found them. Like, no one, like, that I saw was misusing anything. But they were also, they felt total freedom to get kind of up close to an actor to see really what they were doing. That was so interesting that you saw people, somebody, like, an, like a character takes out a letter read, and you see people move around to read over their shoulders. I mean, it was yeah, really and, and, and I was there, and it was so interesting, and, and I, don't, I don't know if this is what usually happens, but there was this, you know, there's some level of nudity in the piece, too, and there was this woman who was cleaning up after this, like, dance rave, and she, I went into that room and she was lifting up, she had like a halter dress and she was lifted up the top and the audience member behind her like took the, the two like laces or whatever and tied it, tied it for her. Oh, that's great. And it was so interesting and I was like, oh my gosh. And he was obviously an audience member, but like she turned around and just made him part of the thing and like kissed his neck and like then just continued on slow. Like she didn't like have this weird reaction to it. She just kind of went with it and it, it was just, but it was also like a totally respectful thing kind of. Yeah. I mean, he just helped her tie the dress. Well, it it's, it's something that also is so interesting that because the audience in that has such power, kind of unlimited power to yeah. do whatever they would like, the normal social contract takes over. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting, because there is nudity, and there's this one whole scene that takes place where there's this woman uh, in a bath, and she takes a bath, and, has a, and then she gets up and is walking around soaking wet and naked through a crowded room of people. Mm -hmm. And people just sort of stepped aside to let her go, and were literally six inches from her as she was walking. And again, one of the things we talked about in the Nudity and Sexuality podcast is sort of the danger that can surround someone being naked on stage. And this was a situation where I felt that she was in absolutely no danger. Yeah, that yeah. Of, of, of any sort, emotional danger or physical danger or anything else, that it is the sort of thing where there wasn't that separation of, of the proscenium there. 
and you were dealing with it as a person who it's like, you know what, if I was wet and naked and walking through a room full of people, I'd like people to step out of my way. And people just did. It was, yeah. it was really interesting. But one of the other things that I think, and, and I don't think the creators of that, I don't know, but I, I suspect they would not deny this, that a huge part of the experience of it was the experience of it. Mm -hmm. That it wasn't that, oh gosh, I'm walking through Burnham Wood and there's a person, but you were very much aware of the form. And the form was really the primary mark marker of what the experience was. Mm -hmm. You know, that it's like, I'm at this show with these very interesting rules. And a lot of what I found most interesting was watching the audience and the way they interacted with each other and interacted with the action of, of the play. And I never lost track of the fact at all that I was in this odd theatrical experience. But that was actually one of the most interesting parts of the theatrical experience. But it gets back again to you're not going to trick people in by getting them to participate, trick them into thinking they're actually in the world of the play. There yeah. will always be audience members participating and therefore when you're designing audience participation, you need to design it with that in mind that that is going to be the audience's experience of it. I agree. I mean, talk about, we're all going to sit and be quiet and watch, so make sure we hear everything and see everything. Um, I mean, which in that show, in Sleeping More, is just, it's, I don't even feel like I can call it a show. Whatever Sleeping mm -hmm. More is, there's no way to see everything. Mm -hmm. There are five floors with, multi, I mean, I think, I don't even know how many hundred rooms there are, but you can't. So it's just, you are going to have the experience you're going to have. I know I went with two friends and we all had completely different, really satisfying experiences, including some very direct one-on-one -on -one audience interaction that some of the, the um, performers, you know, do without, you know, spoilering. Uh, there, there's some, you know, each level of audience interaction is explored in that, in that piece. Um, and there are infinite number of ways to go through that, um, that hotel. On the west side, but the experience, I think the the contract evolves over the course of it, or you you build what those expectations are for yourself and the performer as it happens, yeah. and they cultivate it in a very smart way. Yeah, and again, it's something where audience members who are coming to it generally know what they're coming to, yeah. and before they send you in the room, because they actually gather, they do the sh show actually in 20 minute shifts. So it's like there's a show at 7, at 7.20, at 7.40, at 8 o'clock and at 8.20, although they all are the same show and end at the same time. But part of it is that they bring people together as a group in a room and say, okay, this is what it's going to be. They break them into a smaller group to send them in and remind them these are the rules. But again, one of the interesting things I found was the act extra rules that people added because they said you can look at things, you can go through things, but one of the things I noticed the vast majority of people, like you said, Jenny, were very careful to return things to where they found yeah. it so that other people could have the experience they had had and not have it interrupted by things having been moved. One thing that we touched on really briefly, but I think this kind of brings up again is, is not when we're talking about this contract and your expectations of going into anything, the, the standard thing is your your responsibility to the rest of the audience. I mean, we talked about 
how we're, it's okay to laugh. But if you're watching a movie and you are the one person that laughs at this one joke, I mean, sometimes that's even uncomfortable because why was I the only one that laughed at that? But with this, with sleep no more, giving one the anonymity, you're not, you don't have to look at anyone else and see anyone else's reaction to what you're doing. And and secondly, because they're giving you an experience that is probably going to be unique to you, it ends up being, you it ends up kind of removing some of your responsibility to the rest of the audience mm. as well, which I think is uh, a unique mm. quality. There was a cool quality at the end of that, being like, oh, that you were the guy in the, <laughs> when all our masks were off, you know, like, oh, you were the guy in the Who shirt, like we had all these interactions. <laughs> <laughs> now we're people again. <laughs> I think that's a good place to wrap up. If you are enjoying what you're hearing and uh, would like to let other people know about it, uh, please let them know that the podcast is out there. Uh, if you're listening to this and have not subscribed, you can go to iTunes to subscribe. You can also go there to write us a review and uh, give us stars, uh, and please do. If you would like to know more about the Cry Havoc Company, our educational programs, and our public events where you can come to our space and see our work in development, uh, please go to www.cryhavoccompany.org. If you have thoughts, comments, or questions about the podcast, you can email us at podcast at cryhavoccompany.org. And if you would like to support the podcast and any of our other programs, you can go to www.cryhavoccompany.org backslash support. So for myself, Jen, Jenny, Jersey, Will, and all of us at the Cry Havoc Company, thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you soon. You can learn more about the Cry Havoc Company at cryhavoccompany.org. Questions or comments can be sent to podcasts at cryhavoccompany.org. All music from this show came from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe.